go back to Colossians. And then we'll, we'll end with a little discussion on Israel. On them Israel discussions. But I do want to finish the Colossians discussion because we were, we were, we got partly through that. Colossians 2. Were you guys here for that, Jim, for the first half of Colossians when I did went through it? Okay. Alright. So, in fact, that's the next thing we're going through on a slower level when we go through Colossians. At least I think it is. That's the next intention. But Colossians 2, he's never met them, of course, and he is, um, well, let me, let me back up here. Let me get my little my little recorder going. So Colossians 2, picking back up from a few weeks ago. He's never met them. They've never seen his face, but he's writing to them. And he's trying to help them from being deluded by persuasive argument. 2-4. It's pretty simple. 2-4. You have 2-1. I'm going to be bouncing around here, so I might want to put up more chunks at a time. <laughs> I put up like four verses. Um, he says, I say this, that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. What does he say to them? That basically, that everything that is of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Right? Verse 2, he hopes that their hearts are encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance or the full confidence, the full knowing of understanding. Of understanding what? Well, uh, understanding the true knowledge of God's mystery. So you can have a full, complete assurance. This is exactly what Ephesians 1 says. You can, he has used his wisdom and insight to, un, to make known the mystery of his will. And this one, he words it differently, but he says the exact same thing as Ephesians 1 uh, states it which is that they can come to a full assurance of understanding. Like how many people do you know have a full assurance of understanding the gospel in all areas of God's good news and his administrations? Very few, right? But he says this is the easily attainable reality. You can have a full assurance of understanding and the true knowledge of God's mystery because it it was a mystery and now it's no longer a mystery. And that is what? Christ. So Christ was the man. Understanding that guy. Because if you understand that guy, you understand everything. Because to understand him is to understand everything leading up to him and everything leading out of him in history. Because he's the center point. Everything revolves, revolves around him. Right? So he says this, that they can fully understand and have a full assurance in the true knowledge of Christ. He says that so that no one will delude them and say that they can't. Right? And he says this. For even while I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith, your, your faith in Christ. He's, he's glad to hear about this. And then he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. That's your practical turning point. As you have received him, walk in him. If you've received him according to the the good news, walk in that truth. And he says this, he says, walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your belief, right? Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We have the, he just needs some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way these things go. Uh, so but here's the point this thing breaks down into three three areas where you can be deceived and there's really only three in all of the world there's traditional sort of philosophical changing with the time philosophies there's legalism and there's spooky spiritualism but that's my turn by the way not his. But it's, you know, 
being defrauded by visions you have seen, as he's going to say. So verse 8, verse 16, and verse 18, he breaks down the three things, the three areas where you can be deceived. And we're going to look at those three. And we're going to look at the gospel, which is in 9 through 15. That's the, that's the truth base that holds you. That's what they received. What did they receive? He says, as you receive the Lord Jesus, walk in him. What did they receive? They received 9 through 15. Right? That's what they received. Walk in that truth. Don't let anybody in verse 8, don't let anybody in verse 16, and don't let anybody in verse 18 to take you away and delude you and with some sort of persuasive argument away from 9 through 15. Because 9 through 15 is the good news. And he does it backwards. He starts with the best news and he ends with the justification, the, the, the actual payment. So in Ephesians, you generally start with the payment and you work your way forward to the new creation. And in Peter, it's the same thing. Here in Colossians, he flips it and he starts with, Basically, how the new creation happened, that the result of it, you're complete in him as he's complete deity. And then he works his way back to the payment and all of that and redemption. Yoda style. Yoda style. <laughs> so that's what we're going to look at tonight. It's very simple. This is a very simple chapter. If you know the gospel, it's not so simple if you don't. because It forces you to stretch your mind a little bit. But let's just look at verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through, first, in philosophy, philo, which is love, and sophia, which is wisdom. So the love of wisdom. That transcends a moment in time. It transcends a religion that is through the course of history. Wisdom. People who love wisdom. The Greeks love wisdom, for sure. That was their, their trip up. Empty deception, which is to say a deception without a cogent truth base. Empty, meaning it's empty of a cogent or a, a base of truth grounded in God, right? So an empty deception, they can, be very, they can be very convincing, but there's not a truth base behind it. According to the tradition of men, well, that's just religion, period. Any religion, all denominations that fall within a denomination that would lead you or delude you from the truth. Fourthly, he says, according to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this is the tricky one because the word elementary principles in the Greek is ABC123. And what that means is this, the way that that is understood is don't be led astray by thinking you need the five ways to be a good husband, the 10 ways to be a good wife. Here's the 15 ways to be a good father. Here's the five ways to overcome alcoholism, blah, blah, blah. In other words, the ABCs, the one, two, threes. You could be easily deceived and deluded by walking, by not walking in Christ the way you received him by following something that's going to somehow help you in a specific way. And he's going to give us the way here in verse 23. So these elementary principles are supposed to help people, save them. He says, rather than according to Christ. So why does he say this? Why? He says this. Let me give you the answer to this whole chapter. The whole thing is out of a presupposition that people have that they don't know they have because when they get saved, they don't reconcile this in their mind. They don't, they'll, they'll, they'll listen to the truth. They won't ground themselves as grounded as they need to be. They'll go through a trial, some sin that they've had in the past or something that develops. And then they'll wonder, how do I get rid of this? How do I get this? How do I never struggle with this sin again? There's a big problem with that, that statement, right? It's missing the whole point because verse 23 says, look at it with me. These, these, these eight, verse eight, verse 16, verse 18, these matters which have to be sure an appearance of wisdom, and they do. Oh my goodness, they do. That's why everybody's so deceived by them. And self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. They do have an appearance of, the, of wisdom, yes, but they are of no value against what? Fleshly indulgence. See, people struggle with walking in Christ because they don't understand who they are. They don't understand 9 through 15 well, having been rooted and grounded and firmly established in your understanding, having full assurance in the true knowledge of Christ. If you have full assurance in the true knowledge of Christ, you've been firmly rooted and grounded, you cannot be deceived. You cannot be thrown back and forth by every wind of doctrine. You can't be blown off easily. Why? Because the truth destroys all that. Somebody says, 
I have the formula. Here's the 15 ways for you can get rid of this sin in your life. Wrong. So you're saying that through performing physically, I can somehow rid my body of a sin that it is bound to until death. I live in a body of sin that is bound to the law of sin in Romans 7. I don't get rid of that. You don't get rid of sin in the flesh. When somebody goes, I don't understand. Well, I'm still struggling with this. Well, then you don't understand who you are. You actually think more highly of your flesh than you ought because you actually believe you can through works, through prayer, through reading your Bible, through giving, through folding chairs, through showing up at church. You think that that action somehow makes your physical body, which is on a path to death, go from bad to better to the point of never struggling with a sin again. You can't get more wrong. You can only mature spiritually so the sin lessens to the point of a whisper. But you can never get sin out of the flesh. That happens at the resurrection. But the only reason you can do that is because you have no sin spiritually in the new created spirit, right? If you don't understand that, just read 1 John chapter 3, right? Anyone who is born of God cannot sin. Why? His seed abides in him, for he cannot sin. He is not powerful to do so. The spirit doesn't have the power to sin. As Romans 7 says, your new spirit or your new anthropon, your, your inner man, he calls it there, is bound to the law of God and you're dead to the law of sin, right? You're alive to the law of God and your body is bound to the law of what? Sin. Sin. So it's this misconception of fleshly indulgence where you think that somehow you're so burdened by the guilt because your new spirit is saying, don't do that, don't do that. And your new spirit's not strong enough to actually stop you because you're too ignorant of how to think. But it's yelling against you. And you think, I feel so guilty. I don't want to do this or say this or go there or whatever. Or indulge in this. Whatever the situation is. And the fleshly indulgence gets you guilty and you start looking for solutions outside of faith. And when you do that, you you render yourself powerless. You increase sin because the law increases the desire for sin. And now you struggle more by your own invention of trying to put the flesh under law rather than controlling the flesh by faith. That's the solution. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's a very simple chapter. People who want, everybody wants at salvation to figure out how not to no longer have, you know, uh, bad behavior as a part of their life. Part of that's just stupid pride. You just oh, I don't just oh, I don't, oh, I don't struggle with that no more. You <laughs> just tell me they don't struggle with something no more. They don't. It's not an issue whether you struggle or not. It's an issue of whether you walk in it or not. Right? Walk in newness of life is the goal. Walk in Christ if you've received Him. The only reason you can do that is because the Spirit has been killed put to death, made new, resurrected with Jesus Christ. Now we walk in newness of life and therefore we walk against the flesh. Your flesh is the enemy. It is the Satan in your life. You don't need Satan. You've got enough problems just with it alone. And when you get married, now you've got two. You have kids, you've got multiple fleshes to deal with. Yeah. And so he's saying here, don't be taken captive. The word captive is put in chains because that's what philosophy or traditions or elementary principles. I have to follow these five steps, these 10 steps, these 15 steps in order to maintain being a good husband or a good wife or a, a good uh, you know, employee or um, stay away from this sin or stay away from that sin or, or, or uh, have God love, you know, be approved by God. I have to read my Bible every day for 30 minutes. I have to pray. I have to do this. I have to do that. Or, or I'm, you know, I've sinned. I'm going to have a, if I don't wake up every morning and put on my armor about piece by piece, the devil's going to get me that day. I remember hearing that nonsense. It's like, what are you talking about? That's not the point. Going through a mantra, you really think that's going to somehow make your flesh no longer desire sin? There's no power in that. That's a false belief. The power is in believing that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
That's where the power is. That's why he explains this right here in this little section. This gorgeous. This to me is the most comprehensive in the New Testament. Shortest and most comprehensive statement in the God, on the gospel in the Bible right here. Um, because he packs it all in, even Satan's humiliation in verse 15. He even puts that in the text. See, so he says, for in him, that's Christ. The him goes back to Christ. All the completeness, the word completeness, the fullness of deity dwells in a body, in, a, in the form of a body, right? So, okay, so he's slowing down your mind. He says, all right, I want you to think with me here. All right, in this body, all deity dwells. Got that point? Point A, it's a childlike. This is a very small elementary school. This is not deep theology. This is simple stuff. It's you have to slow down and like teach yourself this. First, okay, do you believe that? Do you believe that all deity exists in bodily form? Right? Do we agree on that? Agree on that? Right? Okay. Second thing. In him, same Greek word, and this is why he uses the same Greek word, even though I don't translate it the same, it should be. In him, you have been made complete or full, just like him. Full deity from that aspect. Right? In him, You've been made complete. So as he's complete deity, you're complete in him. That's it, right? So then he goes to explain this. As he does in every context where he wants you to be assured of something and he is head over all rule and authority. In other words, no one can knock him off the throne and say, okay, we see, because in, in, in the Greek world, this is a big issue, right? You had all of these Greek gods and all their children, and they battled all the time. And Apollo beat such and such. And Hercules beat such and such. And so forth beat such and such. So to the Colossians, this is a big statement, right? Jesus, that God's son, the most high God's son, is actually head and rule over all authority in heaven and earth. He rules over everything. So Hercules, Zeus, all those guys, they don't have a chance. He is the ruler. He's the most high. No one can take and change this thing, right? No one's going to change this. So it's set to us. We're like, yeah, yeah, he's a little bit of no big deal. To them, this was a big deal. And it should be a big deal to us because in reality, it is a big deal. It means that we're secured and we believe this. No one can change it. No one has the power to do that. Then it says, and in him, you were also circumcised. He slows everything down. I like how he slows this down because he talks about being raised, dead and raised with him. But before he does that, he, he slows down and talks about the process of salvation in like super, super, uber duper slow motion mode. Right? Because we just think, God, I believe, you know, Jesus, God, I believe your son died and paid for my sins and so forth and so on. And I believe he's Lord at the end of the day, right? You go through the whole thing. You talk to him. He says, I save you. You can trust me. Bam. I did it with my heart. I did it with my mouth. Salvation comes in, right? It's just instantaneous. But the slow motion mode is right here. Here's what he does. In slow mode, he says, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So slow motion mode is, you're praying, you say, I believe he's Lord at the end of the day, the end of the long you know, tea session you have with, with God. And he says, I'll save you. And he, what he does is he then takes his little finger, cracks him and he goes, and he rips your body and your spirit apart. And he cuts the flesh off of the spirit. Right? That's a slow motion mode. It actually happens at salvation. It happens so fast, you don't know it, but it happened. He rips the flesh, or he, you could do it like a surgeon because they would use that nice little flint knife, you know, off the ground. And he just fillets, if you will, in a most disgusting, disgusting yeah, flesh right off the spirit, right? So he circumcises it. That's what that means. He cuts it off. There's a complete separation between in a moment in time, in a moment in time, sure as God lives, based on everything he says everywhere in the scripture, he removes the spirit and the flesh from one another. Now, we have to pause there for a moment and recognize that now there's a separation between my spirit and my flesh. So what does he do with each one? Because now we have salvation affecting them. He's paid for the sins of both, right? He's paid for the sins of both. But neither one of them at this point are fit for his presence. So he has to rip them apart in order to carry out this administration he has for us to stay on earth 
before his son comes, we have to stay in the fallen body. So the next verse says, having been buried with him in baptism. In other words, he, he killed you. You died with him, right? It's less descriptive because it's short version, but nonetheless, you buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. Listen to this. Through faith in the working of God, in summary, it's beautiful, who raised him from the dead. That's the same thing Ephesians says, same thing Romans says. Same thing. This is a repeat, right? We're just repeating the same thing. But it's all beautifully summarized in this little package. So first, so what you have is he's holding the flesh off for a moment. He kills the spirit. He makes it new. And then he slaps it back together. Right? So unlike circumcision where you throw the piece away, you have to wear it. <laughs> Now put this disgusting thing back on and now we wear this thing until death where you get a new body to match the spirit that I made new, right? So he says, when you were dead, and he goes backwards, right? Because he's right here we're being, we're raised up and we're made new. Now he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the, circum the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him. Then here's the backwards, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. So he forgave us all our transgressions and then he made us alive together with him, right? So he says it another way. You say he put you to death and you were raised with him. He made you alive with him. So he sums it up, even gives you a little extra information. So in case you're wondering about, is this something different than Romans? Is this something different than Ephesians? No, it's nothing different. He made or created you new. He made you alive with Christ. This is an identical parallel to, you know, Ephesians 1, 20 and 26, uh, 2, 6. Um, same as Romans chapter 6. Same as, you know, all the other passages that say the same thing over and over. 2 Corinthians. So he says this here, but he, again, he works backwards, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Yes, he had to forgive us of our transgressions in order to make us alive. So he's going backwards, boom, boom, boom. Notice that he forgave us all our transgressions after he did something. Well, what did he do that qualified God to forgive us of all of our transgressions? He had to take something out of the way. What was that thing he took out of the way? Right there in the text. The law. Having canceled out, where the having, memory going backwards, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. So what did he do? He canceled it. He erased it. It's over. The law said, man sins, he dies. God had to take that. It was a technical reality. He could not technically bring someone into heaven until he took that out of the way. So he had to take that out of the way, and so he did. The law was against us, and it says, which was hostile toward us, and it was. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he has taken it out of the way, just in case you didn't read the previous verse, having nailed it to the cross. Again, what, did, what was above Jesus' head on the cross? No, what was above? King of, King of the Jews. Three different languages, right? But what did God, that was what Pilate nailed. What did God nail above Jesus? The law. the law. Now, what was on the thief beside him? What was above his head? Thief. What was above the murderers? Murderer, because that's the way the Romans did it. If you're a murderer, they put murderer. You're being crucified for murder. They put thief, they put thief. Above Jesus, king of the Jews by Pilate, the law, which is all the sins in the law, he now is paying for all of the sins because God, God nailed the law entirely to the cross. All of it. So once he paid for it, no one else can be accused by that book. No one else can be accused. No, I'm not talking about the, the law of Moses. That's a given. We're talking about the law of heaven. Right? The one that said, if you eat of this fruit, you die. The one that says, if you just sin, you're dead. Because the law of Moses didn't say if you sin, you're dead. It said if you sin, take an animal and a turtle dove and a pigeon and a thingamajigger and kill that sucker and give it to the priest and the whole nine yards, right? That was, that's a watered down 
little shadow of nothingness compared to the law in heaven, which says, if you sin, you die. Right? That law, which is the more simple package, <laughs> that law is erased. And now it's, if you believe, there's a new law. We are saved by law, but it's the law of faith. If you believe what I've done for you, I will save you. You will not be disappointed. I guarantee to save you. And by saving you, what I mean is I'm going to rip your flesh and spirit apart, kill your spirit, make it new based on my own divine nature. In the same way that Jesus is full deity and bodily form, you're complete in that kind of completeness. I put you back together. Now you're my child to represent me on the earth. And your greatest battle is just you controlling your body. You present your flesh as a living sacrifice, right? That's the biggest battle. Beat my body, make it my slave. That is the battle. But greater is he is in you than he's in the world, right? You are powerful. If you believe, you're new. If you don't believe you're new, you're just gonna be fighting this up. I'm an unworthy, I'm a sinner, trying to work myself into worthiness, trying to work myself into sainthood. That is a prison that no one wins. No one. No one is happy at the end of their life after that battle. I've never met one person who said, yes, I feel completely sanctified now or I'm 80% and I'm pretty sure God will be happy with me. They're not. They're not happy because they believe a lie. And they realize somewhere in the midst of their 30s or 40s that they've already lost and they're not gonna win this battle. So they gotta fake it for the next 50 years. That's a miserable place to be. It's a hard place to be, brother. It's a sad story, Mr. Juno. Right? It says, when he disarmed, and this is why I said this, he adds a little bonus detail in here for us. When he disarmed the authorities, the rulers and the authorities, this is why Satan is attached to the law. You, he disarmed him. The rulers and authorities, this is Satan. His angels, his demonic force. He disarmed him by taking the law out of the way. He's connected to it. Once he did disarm him by taking the law out of the way, it says he made a public display of them, rulers and authorities, having triumphed over them through him. And that word made a public display in the Greek is specific to one thing, to when a king or a Caesar would take his people he defeated and he would take the kings and the rulers and the military leaders and he would put them in chains and he would attach the chain to his chariot. And then he would take that and he would march on a chariot with white horses. He would march through the city and he would take and march the defeated foes through the city of Rome, right? So everybody in Rome knew we overcame the Germania, we overcame this area. Here's the rulers, here's the leaders. We parade them through the streets and sometimes at the end of that, they kill them. Sometimes they don't, right? So that's what, this is what this says. It says he took Satan and he enchained him. He tied him to a chariot and he paraded him through the streets of heaven and said, this man is defeated. He now takes him and all his forces he parades him through the streets because it didn't happen on earth. Where's the only place it could have happened? It was in heaven. Heaven was the place that was, that was fought, you know, that was under Satan's siege from Jesus' words. Heaven was the place that was, that was where Satan would visit and constantly accuse God and accuse the brethren. Satan was the place. So when, when heaven, when, when Christ died, heaven had to be rid of this guy and so he paraded him through the streets of heaven and got rid of him. That's when you see in Revelation 12, Michael then fought him, he overcame him. And after that, you would have had this. He paraded him through the streets and then he threw him to the earth awaiting judgment, right? So we get a bonus verse in here. But then he says this, okay, now that you know the gospel, you've been reminded of the gospel, you've been encouraged in the gospel, understand this. Therefore, because of what I just said, because it's done, because of who you are, let no one act as your judge. In what way? And this is the word umpire, by the way, in the Greek. It's very important. In regard to food and drink in respect to festivals, new moons, or the Sabbath day. 
right? You have your people talk about, well, the Sabbath day, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's an expert on the law when they don't know what they're talking about. The referee is this. The referee says, don't let me act like a referee in a baseball game, football game, in the sports world. You have the people on the, in the front row yelling out, there was a ball, that was a strike, that was whatever, oh. They're acting like the referee, but the referee is the one who actually calls the, the shots, right? Christ is the referee. The people will act like the referee, and they'll act like they know what they're talking about. This is why when First Timothy, when he says these people have, you know, they, they, they act like they have confident assertions and things concerning, you know, uh, the law and, and genealogies and all this stuff, but they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand the administration of God, which is by faith. They don't know what they're talking about. And that's what this, this is talking about. People who appeal to the law or some form of this is right and this is wrong, that this is the little codes we're supposed to follow. You're missing the point. We're in the Sabbath rest because we've been saved. From a personal standpoint, we're in the Sabbath rest. From a historical standpoint, the millennial kingdom is Christ's Sabbath on earth. From a personal standpoint in the book of Hebrews, we're in it. We, we float in the, in, the, in the pool of his grace, right? We've been made new and made, uh, made his children, children of the Father. He said, these things, now listen, verse 17, things, things which are a shadow of what is to come. And then it says in the text there, it says, that, but the substance belongs to Christ. But that's not what it says in the Greek. And I wish you'd just translate it straight up. In the Greek, it says, even the body of Christ. That's what it says, even the body of Christ. It literally says, things which are a shadow of what is to come, that shadow is this. The shadow was, a, was of, of the what is to come is this, of the shadow, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the fulfillment of all the stuff. And we're here. So, you know, you know, it's over. So we're talking about us. It's over. Yeah, yeah. It's over. All the festivals, all the stuff, all the stuff, all that stuff is over because the body of Christ is here. And it, we worship every day in spirit and in truth, right? What we're doing now and worshiping, singing songs, fellowshipping, that's fulfilling all this stuff that used to be scripted. We don't need script anymore. Because we live it from our hearts. That's why he says again, third thing, don't let anybody keep, uh, keep defrauding you. What's defrauding? It's leading you to believe something to be true that doesn't have substance or isn't in their own mind even real. It's like a man who goes out with a girl and says and leads her to believe that he's actually intending to marry her, but he doesn't really intend to marry her. He's just intending to have fun with her and then move on. That's defrauding. Defrauding is leading someone to believe something and yet you don't really believe it yourself because people who go through this stuff, they don't really believe what they're doing because they don't have a basis for it. Without objective truth, you don't have a basis. You're just guessing. And so when somebody says I had a vision and blah, 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 it's like, okay, that's fine. It might, you might have, you might not, but there's no objective truth behind it. I'm not gonna say they didn't. I'm not gonna say they did. But if somebody says something to you that leads you away from the gospel, that is objectively a lie, right? I don't care how credible somebody is. That is a lie. Not necessarily Satan behind it. Could be just their own pride. But this, this is what this text is gonna say to us. He says, they keep defrauding you of your prize. What's the prize? That I'm new, that I've, I, the fleshly indulgence I'm trying to deal with doesn't need some spooky spiritual... You see this all the time. Oh, just pray the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, just take this from me. Just take this from me. Take this from me. Right? And, oh, I just don't understand why God had taken it from me. And it's like, well, because he never promises to do anything to your flesh until it's dead and is resurrected. That's when he's going to take it from you at the resurrection. Right? That's when the removal of the sin in the flesh happens because the flesh has changed. And so... If you're looking for a spiritual solution, this miraculous, concerning the flesh, you're not going to get it, period. And if somebody says they got it, they're lying or they were lied to. Some people will think that God healed them of something or took away from some desire of a sin. What they're realizing is if their spirit was made new, that's where the desire was taken away from. 
and though they're flesh, some people are more spiritually evil and less fleshly evil. And some people are more fleshly evil and less spiritually evil. So when they get saved, if they had a, something they needed to be saved, when they get saved, they're, yeah, I don't desire that sin anymore. Yeah, because it originated more in the spirit than it did in the flesh. And some people are more fleshly evil. In other words, more sensual, more, more touch, taste, tight, whatever. And so they get saved and they're still dealing with the indulgence of the flesh because it's a less intense and yet more consistent sort of worldly attachment. And so some people will think, oh, God took it away. He doesn't change the flesh. Nowhere will you find in the scripture God's just going to do that. He says he'll comfort you through it. He'll make a way through it. He'll give you peace through it. He's not going to take it away. He never says it because if he does that, we're no longer walking by faith. We're no longer walking in a fallen body. So my body's, what, 2% better because God took something out and made it like no longer uh, possible to be tempted in that way? It's not consistent with the truth. It's a misunderstanding of the truth is all it is. And so he says here, let no one keep defrauding your prize by delighting in self-abasement. I see this all the time. You know, oh, I'm so unworthy. I'm so unworthy. Oh, not him, not, not I, but him, blah, blah, blah. says the worship of angels, and that's the word messengers. Paul called himself an angel all the time. They translate it messenger because you're used to seeing the term messenger. But in this case, I believe this is not talking about angels. It's talking about men because Paul was an angel, an angelos. The word angelos means messenger. It can mean heavenly messenger. It can mean man like Paul or Timothy or Stephanus or whoever, right? And what do you see today? The worship of what? Men. In religion, it's my, who's my pastor or who's the guy I'm following, right? It's the worship of messengers. By taking his stand on visions, and the word is not visions in the Greek, it's actually things, but with the concept or ideal of visions behind it, right? Could be a dream, could be a vision. Taking his stand on things he has seen. So it's broader than visions. Could be his human experiences. Could be a vision. Could be a dream. Could be anything. Just things that person has seen. That person is inflated without a cause by his own fleshly mind. And he says, that person is not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments Grows with the growth which comes from God. I just spoke with one of the guys I spoke to in uh, West Virginia this week, and just that short time of taking to the gospel over the two visits, he called me up and he said, You know, I didn't believe you. I, I believed you. I didn't believe you. I saw it in the text. He goes, But it's amazing immediately how much. He goes, I, how, how much. He goes, Bottom line, I don't know how to say it except that it's easy to walk out godliness and righteousness and holiness. And I would have never believed that. Because it's easy. I said, yes, what you're saying is I'm now walking in power, right? Because the word of God says we're powerful and we have power, right? Walking in the what is Power, where's all this power when everybody's walking around groveling about how weak and pathetic they are? The power is gone because there, or it's not available to somebody not walking by faith. God rewards faith. He does not reward faithlessness. But you have to start with, he said, he goes, I, I did this. He goes, and this was hard for me. He said, I had to, I approached it the way you suggested. I approached it as if I had never learned any religious or any Bible ever in my life. And I said, if I was somebody who had never read the Bible and I just read it for the first time and then, then secondly, chose to believe it like a child. He goes, when I did that, it's like my eyes opened. I started reading it as if I'd never learned anything. This guy's been to Bible college, been in ministries of life, blah, 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 just struggling and tortured. And he goes, and I read, read it like a child. And he goes, and then I, I saw it. It's like, yeah, there it is. It says everything. It's unbelievable. He says, I feel so relaxed. He says, I'm such at peace. It's amazing. And that's just a, what, four or five, you know, maybe five teaching times with a guy. 
Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, just one that happens over and over and over. When you when somebody believes the truth, they finally take it what Jesus says. Believe it like a child. Approach God like a child. Believe the truth like a child. Then you can walk in newness of life because you're believing what was said. Because this is grand information. This is what he said to Nicodemus. If I tell you of heavenly things, how would you pause? I can't even tell you earthly things. In other words, God does this on earth. He circumcised you on earth. He's, talking, he's giving you the baby language of earth. He's not talking about the great, amazing heavenly language of what God actually did from heaven. He's giving you the earth program part of it, right? You're just getting a little bite of this whole vision and it's difficult for people to go, well, I can't scientifically break that down. You know, well, of course you can't because it's God, right? Breaking a spirit and a flesh apart in a moment in time, killing it, making it new and slamming it back in there. Yeah, you can't quantify that from a human standpoint. You can say, yes, I understand there is a spirit, there is a flesh. I don't know how you rip them apart. I don't know how you put them back together. But that's, that's like God division science, right? There is science behind it, right? Because God creates things. When he creates them, he creates them in a scientific, logically way. In other words, there's aspect of how things fit, how the spirit fits into the flesh and how you remove it and how you, there's a science. There's a heavenly science that we don't know about. There's a science book up there. You're like, yeah, read it right here. Here's how it works. Right? When you get there, you can read about how to take the flesh and the spirit apart. But we don't understand that part. That's the part. It's not, when people say, oh, you just got to believe. No, no. It's objective. I understand it. Like the truth is diagrammable. In other words, you can diagram it. You can objectively break it down. It's cogent. There's a philosophical base for why it all fits and works. That's all done. What I don't get the privilege of is the science of how it worked. I understand the payment for sin. That's, that's just simple, right? That, there is a science behind that. God's love caused the problem. And resulted in him needing to kill somebody. That's all a very logical statement. There's no real science behind it. The science comes along when you start talking about, well, he killed you spiritually and made you alive spiritually and ripped you apart and slammed you back. There's a science behind that that we're not privy to. And that's where people trip up. They go, well, I can't understand that scientifically, therefore, or logically, from a human standpoint, therefore, I don't believe it. It must mean something else. But it'd be like God created the heavens and the earth. What's the yeah. science behind creating the heavens and the earth? They try, keep trying to come up with a big bang nonsense and whatever. It's like, there's no science behind that. And if you squish everything into the head of a needle and it blows up, becomes the universe, you know, oh yeah, you guys are smart. Anyway, yeah. this is the smart people yeah, talking like in the room. Right. Right. So anyway, going back to it. It says, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole entire body being supplied and, uh, supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which comes from God. And it does. When you believe the truth and you tighten into that, you walk in how you receive Christ, then you get in a body and you start growing. You can grow without a body, but you're going to go a lot faster with one. And you get tight with the body and you start maturing and then you're going to hold fast to the head of, which is uh, Christ, and grow in God's growth more and more because that's the way He's designed it. But it's going to be because you're unified in the same belief as God and Christ. You're walking in that truth. And He says this. This is His summary. If you are, and it should say since, by the way, since you have died with Christ to the ABCs and the one two threes to the elementary principles of the world. Why is it as if you were living in the world? Do you subject or submit yourself to decrees such as this? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And these all, he says, which all refer to things destined to perish, which with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. And that's when he comes to this great summary. This is what helps you understand the entire reason why he starts in 2.4 and ends in 2.23, these matters which have, and again, to be sure, 
a clear appearance, right, of wisdom. They do. Religion has an appearance of wisdom. Self-help books have an appearance of wisdom. And self-help books, by the way, are very good for pagans. They help them. They can order their life by logical, you know, one, two, threes, ABCs, and can progress from less productive to more productive. That's what, you know, you learn, you educate, you uh, learn what good for you, blah, blah, blah. As a pagan, they work very good. For a child of God, they don't. They have an appearance of wisdom and a self-made religion. Again, they are self-made or would be. And self-abasement because in order to in order to carry out the ABCs and the one, two, threes or the love of wisdom, you have to say, okay, because I'm incapable, I have to then humble myself and I have to put myself under laws of some kind and follow some rudimentary you know, suggestions from some smart person who's smarter than me who came up with the ways to overcome something, that's self-abasement. You're abasing yourself underneath someone's opinion uh, in order to carry out a more godly life. That's self-abasement. And it can lead to a severe treatment of the body if you don't believe it, just read church history. People walking on their hands and knees, locking themselves in caves, living up in a tree, all these extreme examples, but man, it happened by the thousands in the Dark Ages. By the thousands, people doing the most insane things. They would walk on their knees and hands and blood trails and kiss Mary's feet, you know, at the, the statue of Mary for miles and miles to prove their loyalty. People would walk barefoot and whatnot all the way to down to Jerusalem on the, the Crusades and, and they would go on. A lot of people would just track down there as, um, you know, to, uh, to worship God in Jerusalem and come back. Half of them were slaughtered along the way. And so it was the severe treatment of the body was serious back in the day. He says, but there, these are, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Right? If you don't understand that concept, you're, you don't understand what most people deal with. They're dealing with their battle. They come out when they're young thinking, I'm going to overcome this. I'm on the mountaintop. I went to youth camp. I'm, I'm happy, whatever. And I'm going to come and I'm going to overcome the flesh. I'm never going to struggle with sensuality anymore. I don't care about things in the world. I don't care about having a boyfriend. I don't care about having a girlfriend. I don't care about owning sweet stuff or having a big house. I just want to serve Jesus, be a missionary, do great th- stuff. And then a month goes by and they're like, why do I love the world so much? Ah, you know, then you start thinking, maybe I just need to cut myself off. I just need to like, just cut this out of my life, you know. And, and they start, all of a sudden, the fleshly indulgence, which is natural to the flesh, tricks you into thinking that you cannot escape it. That you have to live on the mountaintop in order to get away from it. You can't go into the world. Oh, no, no, no. Because the world is just going to pull you in. Like, you know, you're, you're sucked in. You know, trust in me. So, like, you don't have a chance. If you go out into the world, you're not going to have a chance. That's not true. If you're grounded and rooted, you go out, you live your life, you share the good news. What happens? People see it. You're a light. You're not concerned about the weakness of your flesh. Right? You're transparent. By the way, this is important. People are so afraid of being exposed or even showing any weakness. It's ridiculous. In the body of Christ, being rooted and grounded and being connected to the body is exposure. Right? If, if, if people, oh, well, somebody sinned and, and, and it got exposed. Yeah, of course it did. Because... You're in the body. How's it, how are you going to be a part of the body and the body and the brain and the breast, the arm, not feel the pain in the finger? It's actually important. What does Ephesians 5 say? You're children of light. And what is the duty of a child of light? Expose stuff. Right? People are so like, oh, well, you're not supposed to expose stuff. Nonsense. You only care about hiding something if you value the flesh See, all of us right here have equal spiritual glory. We're all complete in Jesus Christ. We all share and partner in God's own deity. We're all created according to God. We're all made just like Christ in his, in his glory and his honor, right? We're perfected as he is. We're, we can't sin just like 1 John 3 says from a spiritual standpoint. It's impossible. 
You have no power to do it. You don't have the dunamai. You don't have the power to sin spiritually. Right? You cannot. That's the word cannot in the Greek. So that means the only place sin remains, as Romans 6 and Romans 7 talks, is in the flesh. So we're all equal here. We're all equal. No one is greater than anybody else. There's just more mature people and less mature people. That's it. No one here is any less. What we all differ in is our flesh. Some of that starts genetically. My wife's side of the family is very different than mine. You know? When I say my wife's side, meaning Beth, Grace, Hope, you know, Kai. They're very different than me, Kara, Ellie, and Faith. Very different. Very different people. So that means we struggle with different things. Right? We talked about messy rooms earlier and how natural. Yeah, some people are natural that way and some people have nice, neat things. Right? Like, when, when she was young, she was, you know, stacking the Legos nice and perfect. Grace was like blowing them all over the room. You know? So... And uh, you want to really see the battles going on. Let, she'll build a nice Lego tower of perfection and Gracie comes along and kicks it and shatters it into a thousand pieces. Lovely at two years old, the war. The, huh? Well, that was both, both parties, you know. You're messing up stuff, blowing stuff up. Yeah, that was true. She did She was both a... Yeah, yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. But the point is, it's very different. All of our flesh is different. No one is the same, Right? You have a certain proclivity toward a certain direction due to your actual DNA. If my kids were not raised in my home, they would still have a proclivity toward a certain manner of life as others would have a certain manner of life. And so all of us here have that. So, and all of us here are a liar on everything until we tell the truth, right? When you get saved, you've lied your whole life because nothing you've ever believed has been based in the good news. And so because of that, your whole life has been a lie, even though much of it was true statements. It was within the context of a lie, right? Because it's based in the world's belief of how the world created, was created, and, and who we are as people and all that. So the base of the presuppositional foundations of our existence was a lie. Therefore, everything pours out of that. It's based in that lie. Therefore, our whole life is a lie. Even two plus two is four is a truth within a bigger lie, Right? And so you work yourself out of lying by saying, yeah, two plus two comes because of God's creative order of things and how he designed the creation as opposed to it just is the logic of the Big Bang, right? So your ideal on marriage is a lie. If you go to Starbucks and you sit down and you listen to two people talking, you're listening to this person tell this person a lie and this person respond this person with a lie. And they're all just lying. And in the midst of those lies are some really wise and interesting things. But they're not based in the gospel. Therefore, they're a lie on how to relate to a husband and a wife. They're a lie. Everything. Everything without faith is is sin, right? Whatever's not of faith is sin. And faith in this, the gospel, the basis, Christ, the mystery, right? So all of us lie until we tell the truth. All of us fail as a husband until you don't. All of us fail as children until you don't. Right? And the difference is you have a knowledge that has transformed you, metamorphosis, because you believed it, not just read it, you read it to believe it. And once you believed it with your heart, then you will transform. And that is a powerful act that happens. A powerful act. And it never goes back. You don't untransform. You transform and you mature through that transformation of knowledge. And then you apply it and then you root yourself in it, which is what you rooted and grounded and you firmly established. By the application of your faith after transformation, you then ground yourself. What if I said, if you can be successful just in one area, on one thing in faith, pick one thing you want that you struggle to apply your faith in. Pick that one thing and just master faith in that one area. Master it, just one area. And what will happen is that will immediately explode and bleed over because you'll see how powerful you are and how easy it is to walk in unison of life in that one area once you apply faith to that. See, what faith? That's the discussion. What's the context? Who's involved? Blah, blah, blah. There's a, there's a discussion to be had, Right? What's the faith to be applied? Well, the gospel. 
The administration, yes. What part of it? Right? Is it guilt? Well, the blood of Christ. Is it dealing with indulgence? Newness of life. Is it trusting God with an unrighteous boss? Well, Christ entrusted himself to the one who judged righteously and entrusted himself to God that God would care for him and love him and take care of him. And he says, you do that to employers. You do that to kings and governors. Wives, you do that to husbands there in Peter. Right? A person who trusts himself to God, looks to God to deal with the problems, understands the authoritative structure, you apply yourself in that God responds. But you can't see it, right? There's no one in the Bible that says, hey, Greg, if you subject yourself to your boss today, I'll, and this could go on for two years like I did with Joseph, but if you, you endure, I will reward you. Because he says, I will reward you, Colossians 3. I will reward you. I will honor you, right? That's what he says. So if you just go, okay, I will give myself over to this. And I will look for God to respond. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. He could easily deal with a man. He could easily deal with an organization. I will give myself to him and let God, the creator, deal with this. All right? And I'm just going to love this person and treat him like they're Jesus Christ. Because we're all in the Christ position. Hold on, God. We're all in the Christ position. My kids are in the Christ position. If Christ were young, then they would need to be taught the truth. They would need to be corrected. They would need to be, uh, have uh, details explained about how to do the basics in life. And I'm in the Christ position because I'm the one that I'm teaching them. They're in a Christ position. They need to be taught. I'm in the Christ position. I need to lead well. They have to see me as I'm, I'm Christ. I have to see them as if they're Christ because we're all in Christ. Right? Now, even my pagan boss is in the Christ position because Christ is Lord over him. Right? This is the administrator. We'll get into this another time. But I have to see him because Christ has put him over me. Now, why would Christ allow me to go into this job? Why would Christ let me go into this, knowing this rascal's in there, this rattlesnake, and I've got to deal with this person? Why would God put me in this situation? For me. For me. Because I obviously need to grow and mature, and this is the perfect place to do it. If I can show grace and kindness and faith and love and support to this rascal, then, and I am successful through it, then God will honor me and he'll bless me on the backside now with something of a wonderful position after that. But this is the place where you get put in the fire, right? So what was it? Um, what, yeah, I can't remember. Is the... You know, we look at a sword and say, what's the, what's the hardest part of making a sword? You know, what would, if a sword were to speak and embody itself, what would be the hardest part of its life? It's a, the making process. You know, when I was put into the fire, melted, molded, hit, and hammered, and then finalized the, the polishing. And as children of God, you know nothing. You're ignorant. You're sinful. You, you've been a liar. You've been a failure. Everything is wrong. And now you have to go through the, the process of maturation, which is getting put into the fire. How else can you mature except to get knowledge and then apply the knowledge? You have to have a fire to apply it in. Right? You need to be tempted. You need to be tested. You need to fail. You need to figure out why you failed. Then you need to be successful. You need to figure it out. And the only way to figure it out is to get in the game. Right? Not hide yourself away from all the little... The little, the little uh, things that are out there that are, that are uh, you know, that might poison the mind and whatever. If, you're, if you do a good job of training yourself up, if you're a father, you train up your kids in the truth, they're going to be equipped to handle the world. Because at some point, they're going to handle it. And age will do nothing to help them. Right? Age will do nothing to help them. So older, mature now, older. No, they know nothing still. They're going to get run over. We were talking about this. You know, the best thing you do for your kid is sit down at the table, the dinner table or whatever table, not the couch, go sleep. Sit down at the table, sit up and teach them the truth. Them listening to you in this setting doesn't help. I don't trust this to help my kids. I don't trust that they're hearing me. Where I've spent my time is at the table, teaching them for hours and hours, going through this very thing in the exact same way, having them read the text, 
And then me talk to them through it and asking them, do you believe this? Do you understand this? And getting the feedback. They have to then develop in their own belief. They're the first line of ministry. So if you're a father, that's the goal. You're going to be a father, that's the goal. You sit down and you work hard in it. You go through the books. You go through the gospel and you keep grinding through it until your kids know it. Then it's not on you. It's up to them at that point. You can't make your kid walk by faith. They have to walk by faith. But that's now God. You just throw them to God and say, there it is, God, Jesus, and pray for them and tell them to work it out. But you can be here for them, right? So anyway, that's my encouragement to you tonight. Um, again, simple truth. The gospel bound up in this lovely package. Uh, and it's, it's amazingly comprehensive and clear and simple and yet profound in its application. So I hope this was a blessing to you tonight and uh, with that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your blessing on us tonight. I pray that as we walk in Christ, as we have received him, that we be successful as those approaching your word like little children. To approach it as one who's never heard it before and yet sees it for the first time and believes every bit of it. The great things you've done to us, the amazing, fantastic truths. May you be glorified and honored in our lives through this situation, through this truth and in in the situations of our life because we apply our faith that you've done this, all this is true, that we are new, And because of that, we can walk in that newness of life. That we're powerful not to let sin reign in our mortal body so as to obey its desires. Because we're dead with you and we've lived, we're alive with you. So thank you. Thank you, Father, for this great work you've done. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling, empowering, and strengthening us. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for sitting at the right hand of God and being our advocate, being the one who loves us, who gave, gave yourself for us, who looks forward to being with us, giving praise and honor to the Father. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.